Welcome to the Brian Kane Peak Performance Podcast. On each and every episode, Brian talks with coaches, athletes, and performers in all arenas who are putting into practice the principles of peak performance that will help you close the gap from where you are to where you want to be to help you become a master of the mental game and to help you start dominating the day. This is Brian Kane with the Brian Kane Peak Performance Podcast, and today we've got a very special guest, Burt Watson. He's known around the mixed martial arts community and especially within the Ultimate Fighting Championship as the babysitter to the stars. For those not uh, aware of MMA or the UFC, think about Burt as the athletic director of the UFC to make sure that everything comes off without a hitch. There's the guy behind the scenes that makes sure the fighters get where they need to be, that they're taken care of, and they get to the cage in the right mindset and are ready to go. And we've got Burt Watson here to talk a little bit about his career, what's made him the best in the world at what he does, and then some of those common characters characteristics among those elite warriors that you might be able to use as a coach or as an athlete who's listening to this podcast. So Bert, really appreciate you making time to come together. Uh, you just spoke to the Yale University football team and knocked it out of the park. It was unbelievable, man. Could you give our listeners kind of your background, um, you know, growing up in Philly and you were, you were a track athlete and kind of how you got into the boxing community and then eventually uh, into MMA and positioned yourself as the best in the world at what you do? I started in Philly, coming from Philadelphia, uh, you know, and still living in Philly. You know, went through high school in Philly, did a little college in Nebraska. When I finished up my college career, I went to Marine Corps for a while. Uh, later on, when I got discharged from the Marine Corps, I eventually had a chance meeting with Smoking Joe Frazier. I met Joe. Joe and I became friends, and over the period and over a course of time, we went. Our friendship, our, our, our friendship went went from just hanging out and kind of sitting and talking to the other two. I eventually became his manager, uh, and uh, being Joe's manager, you know, it was it was my job. And I, I wasn't his manager when he was fighting as a as a boxer and a boxing manager. I became his manager when the situation was for him to make a living off of his name. Which was not a hard thing to do because Smoking Joe Frazier was already a branded name, so I really didn't have a hard job. But I became his manager, and I worked with Joe uh, over a period of 15, 15 years. Uh, and I worked with Joe up until about 1997 or so. At that time, uh, still being in boxing, still working, I, w- I didn't want to get out of boxing. I wanted to stay in boxing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to stay active. So I started bouncing around from promoter to promoter, and boxing, as big as it is, was very small. Everything was done word of mouth. So I was, my name was passed around from one promoter to another as a coordinator, as a guy to bring in, to kind of put all the parts together, all the moving parts. During my course and during the time in boxing, I saw that there was a real disconnect between the fighter and the promoter. I mean, it was all over the place. Fighters would show up for a fight, uh, show up the day before a fight, didn't have a room, didn't know how to get from the airport, couldn't get back to the airport, the room wasn't ready, the training facilities, all these things were all over the place. So I saw with that disconnect that someone needed to get in there and pull all of that in, take all those tentacles and make it one big whiplash. So I jumped in, Head first, I started pulling guys in, coordinating rooms, air and ground transportation, workout facilities, training facilities, and I took all those separate pieces 
and made it one. And it all became a part of the process. And it all became a part of my process. And I actually created the job that I do now as site coordinator, uh, fighter, fighter relations and operations man. I created that. And that just transcended from boxing. Uh, I did uh, Muhammad Ali. I worked with Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Mike Tyson, Oscar De La Hoya, Leila Ali, you know, uh, Roy Jones. I, and I did all of the major events on HBO, Showtime, USA, uh, the Friday night boxing events. I did all of the, I did most, the majority of those events. And that led up to me going out to Vegas and working in Vegas with the different casinos and the hotel. Again, word of mouth. They started passing my name around. And mm-hmm. uh, there were times when, when HBO and Lou DiBella, who was the uh, sports VP at HBO, said, you do a fight, you bring this guy in as a coordinator. And that's how it started. I did Costa Zoo and Zab Judah in Vegas. And someone came to me, the promoter came to me and said, listen, I got a guy that's interested in starting some kind of MMA or, or something he's going to start, but he needs a coordinator, and I want you to talk to him. That guy he brought in was Dana White. Hmm. He brought Dana White in during the weigh-in to introduce, him to, to introduce him to me. I only had maybe an hour or so to sit and really talk to him. The bottom line in the conversation was, I'm starting an organization. I may have my first fight. Now, this was in November. I may have my first fight in February or March. If you're you're available, I'd like to use you. And I said to him, you pay me and you respect me, I'll be there. Plain and simple. And that was UFC 30. That was my very first fight. Mm -hmm. I went on. I did that fight. First year, I think we did maybe five five or six fights. Uh, It eventually grew where to last year, uh, in 2014, I think the end of the year, we did 39. And that was all over the world. And in 14 years, I only missed two fights in 14 years. But it, it all started to develop into a process. It all started to develop into uh, a stable. Uh, right now, I see with, with, with me being involved in, in MMA and UFC for 14 years, I've worked with a lot of cornermen. I've worked with a lot of people. And I've now gone around and seen a lot of promotions. And a lot of things I see are things that I can legitimately say I got my stamp on it. Yeah. Or, or I... Because there was no process for MMA. Mm. There was no system to it. You know, when, when, when Dana started uh, the UFC... It was a promotion, and that was it. The rules, the regulations, the operational procedures, and how it worked, there was none. Mm-hmm. It was a working process. And as we went along, you know. You helped to grow. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I, I will absolutely, one of the things that right now, if, if you notice that everybody in MMA and boxing use red and blue tape, and I will go down on record saying I'm the first guy that did that. Hmm because everybody was using white tape or something else. And I did, a, I did a show where we had the big monitor, and I looked up on the monitor, and the fighters were on the ground, and all I could see was hands and gloves. And I saw white tape around the hands and the gloves, but I couldn't see who the fighter was. Right then I looked at that and said, you know what? That's got to change. Mm-hmm. 
So then I put red tape on red fighter, blue tape on blue. Now you can have a fight. And if you, you don't have to see the faces. Mm-hmm. You know that there's two different guys because there's red and blue tape. Mm-hmm. And sometimes now when the referee separates them and walk, he doesn't even have to look. You know, there's a corner they go to by the hand, by, by the, the by tape the red, on their gloves. By the red and blue tape. And those guys can find out what club the corner they're going to because they usually don't know either. 100 <laughs> percent. Wow. You know, Bert, you've had you've had a, an amazing career in in MMA and in boxing, and you know, you first time I ever came across you was August 24th of 2007, UFC 74. I remember it clear as day. Uh, uh, it was George St. Pierre, Josh Koscheck. The main event was Randy Couture versus Gabriel Gonzaga. And I remember just the, you know, you're, you're back in the locker room with the energy that you brought, just letting guys know that we're rolling, this is how we do it, and getting them going. You know, you've seen the best fighters in the world in MMA and boxing, probably in the, a stage of preparation right before the fight that as an athlete or a coach listening to this, you want to know what those guys are like. You want to know what a George St. Pierre or Ronda Rousey, uh, uh, um, you know, Randy Couture or Brock Lesnar, what are those guys like in the locker room of Donald Cerrone, a John Jones? What do you well, notice about well, the best guys? Is there any commonalities? You know, there's, there's uh, uh, the, the, the thing that I've learned is that I never really tried to figure them out individually, but I first started with learning to listen to them. Hmm. I listened. I I make it a point to listen to everything anybody says. There's nothing anybody can say that's irrelevant or too small because if they say it, they mean that means they want you to hear it. So I started listening. I started listening to what they say, how they say it, when they said it, because everybody was different and everybody changed, and there was different points of the week that <clears throat> that guys would change and girls would change, and you had to basically get to listen to what they said and what they felt to react to what they did and what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and and that might, might sound a little difficult, but I did more listening and reacting than I did trying to figure out and trying to get done what they what they needed. Because everybody, the only time the guys and the ladies switched to be about the same was when it was time to get into that cage. When you get, when you took them on that thirty second walk to the cage, and you got them in front, and their ring walk music would start because some guys, no one moves until they till that ring walk music comes on, and they hear it at a certain point and they move. And when they get in that cage, it's the only time they become something that you can identify with. Hmm. What well, is there any common characteristics in terms of preparation or things that you saw fighters do? Um, Backstage, or is there anything that the best guys like that you said? You know, these guys did this, and I saw like, whether it's mental imagery or you know, guys. Um, well, the common, in terms of I mean, I mean, you saw common commonality is that you, you you had to know that when it came time to cut weight and and fight day, they all needed their space. Mm-hmm. They all needed that little bit of time. They all needed to be alone. They all needed to be left alone. They all needed, you know, they needed, they needed to be directed. They needed everything to be secured and put in place that they just had to follow the system and follow the process. Uh, the guys that made it through the bright lights were the ones that listened. The ones that, 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 that didn't think they were bigger than the sport. And there were those, and there are those who think they're bigger than the sport or bigger than, than MMA, you know, when you get the guys that, that, that listen 
and focused on what they were doing. And when I say listen, listen to their trainers, listen to their dietitian, listen. The guys that they bring on, they bring them on for a reason. They don't just bring them on just to hang on. Hmm. Not all the time. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. maybe. But when you get a guy that brings a guy on who's a striking coach, a grappling coach, a, a jiu-jitsu or a Muay Thai coach or a dietitian or a, or, a, or, or, or a psychological psychologist, when they listen to those guys, then you know you got a guy that's going to make it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was the thing with, with St. Pierre was he was so, you know, so humble to, to, that he would surround himself with the best guys in the world when he was in Montreal, whether it was him training with an Olympic sprint coach or Olympic wrestling coach or an mm-hmm. Olympic gymnastics mm-hmm. coach or mm-hmm. Olympic boxing coach. He'd go in and he would be like the worst guy there because he's training with Olympic athletes. But when he put the whole package together, he'd be unbelievable. And, and that's, that, takes a, that takes an awful lot of humility, I think, for somebody to be able to do that. Well, you know, and, 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 and unfortunately, you know, I, I, I've, I've learned that, that when you speak of it takes a lot of humility. A lot of professional fighters don't become humble until they lose their first fight or they almost get their ass whooped. That's when that humility comes in, and that's when they pull it in, and that's when they realize how much, maybe how much more they need to listen, mm-hmm. or the guys that they need to listen to, or the mistakes that they made, or, or that they threw a left and didn't follow with the right, the different things like that. You know, nothing's more humbling than <laughs> them losing a fight. I don't want to get an ass whooping, but them losing a fight, then the guy comes back in and then he settles down and then he starts listening to the people that he's put around him. I think sometimes there are athletes too that when they lose, whether it's a fighter losing a fight or a football team losing a game, you know, that they, they can go one of two directions. And they can look at it as it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I learn from it, I get humbled and I go back to work mm-hmm. with a different mindset, maybe more mm-hmm. of a learner's mindset, mm-hmm. or they get a lot of that self-doubt and they don't know if they can perform at that highest level. How important is that? Is confidence to guys fighting well? And how do you see confidence in a locker room before a fight? Is it even a, is it even a factor back there, or does no one have? Everyone has the fear. What do you, it's, what do you it's, think? It's it? it's it's very necessary. I mean, and I said, you know, I spoke to the guys at Yale tonight, and and I told them, you know, no one likes negative energy. Mm. Now, what is negative energy, or what? It, it, it's hard to detect, but when you put a bunch of guys in the locker room and everybody has to fight. You know, when one guy goes out and he loses, another guy goes out and he loses, then I have to walk through and I see I got three more guys in that room that are going to fight and two guys have already gone in there and lose. Mm -hmm. I go in and I check the temperament and I check to see what's going on. Whether I need to move those two guys that just lost out of that room, you know, or I can leave them in that room or, you know, but that's something you got to, you know, you got to play by ear. You know, you got to kind of play around with it, with it a little bit. But there is, I mean, the, the the positive energy and the negative energy. There are some guys that that can deal with it. Some guys that know how to shut it out. Some guys it totally destroys. There are guys, I mean, superstitions and things like that. You know, if if like I said, if if I got six guys in the, in the locker room and two guys lose and come back in there, one of those guys is going to want to go out of, going to get out of that locker room. Even though by then it's a little too late to do that, but one or two of them are going to want to do that. Yeah. From, from a mental game or mindset standpoint, is there anything that you, you know, you, you 
of noticing guys that you think for the for athletes listening to this, or even even for the Yale football players that you just spoke with and, and were phenomenal? Is there anything that you've seen in the mindset of an MMA fighter that you think every athlete should have? Well, I think that 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 the one thing about that I've seen in an MMA fighter is that they're all very hungry. They're all very anxious. And 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 they don't fight but maybe two or three times a year, if that. And for the most part, if you're not a George St. Pierre or a John Jones or a Ronda Rousey, fighting less than three times a year is not an easy thing to do from a standpoint of finances and a financial, you know. So guys dedicate themselves to fighting more, to fighting often, to being in shape, to staying in shape, and to get into a level where they can eventually make some more money. Or if there's anything that, any, maybe the last question here, is there anything that I have not asked you about, you know, your career or being, being around the best guys in the world that I should have asked you that the listeners might be able to take home, again, our listeners being coaches and athletes, that they could take home and they could learn from and maybe apply in their life or in their teams? Well, there's a, there's a, a couple of things that I say, and I say it to Every one of the fighters and every one of the, every one of the cornermen when I work around them, you know that sometimes when the lights go on, some people's lights go out. It's okay to let your lights get a little dim, but you never let them go out. And you take care of your body and your mind, and it'll take care of you. You take care of your body and your mind, it'll take care of you in the beginning, it'll take care of you in the middle, and it'll take care of you in the end. But you got to take care of it. Because when you're ready and you need it, if you haven't taken care of it, it'll let you down. So, Bert, last thing, you know, you, I just saw you speak to the Yale football team for about 20 minutes about mindset and your experience to get those guys ready to play a game tomorrow. Um, and I don't think the guys blinked. Your energy was off the charts. The engagement was off the charts, uh, as, as it was expected just from seeing you do your thing. Um, you know, for people that are interested in contacting you to come in and speak to their teams or speak at their organizations about elite performance and, and kind of your, your experience in MMA and being around the best in the world, um, they can reach you, obviously, at your website, which is Burt Watson for Real. That's B-U-R-T-W-A-T-S-O-N, the number four, Real, R-E-A-L, Burt Watson for Real.com. And they can follow you on Twitter, which is at Burt Watson for Real. Again, number four, B-U-R-T-W-A-T-S-O-N, the number four, Real, at Burt Watson. Um, is there? Is there... Can you talk a little bit about kind of your what you're looking to try to do and how you how you're trying to give back from your experience to help people to grow through your website and through some of the speaking that you're that you're doing so well? Well, at this point in my life, the only legacy that I can leave is to be productive and to be helpful and to take the knowledge and the experience that I have and try to pass it on to those that I work with, those that I work around. I want to pass around, pass off that knowledge, the positive energy. Uh, I like teaching. I like, I like helping. I like taking uh, up-and-coming young promoters and young fighters and showing them and teaching them that there is a system, there is a process, and how to work the system and how to work a process. I love teaching and I love working with kids, 100%. And I make myself active on social media. 
uh, through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and everything that I have out is Burt Watson, foreal.com, number four. At any time, you can reach me. I try to keep my news blog open so that whenever I'm making a personal appearance or I'm speaking somewhere or something, uh, it's it's there. But you can always reach me on that website, BurtWatsonForeal.com. And for coaches or athletes out there listening to this, if you know Bert's traveling the globe, working in MMA, and you can see where he's going to be at, if he's in your area and you can get him, or if you have him come in solely to speak to your team, you will be glad you did. Enjoy it. Thanks again, Bert. Appreciate you. My pleasure, baby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Potential Apparel. Potential Apparel is on a mission to inspire athletes to reach their true potential. If you're serious about reaching yours, then you have to go check them out. They make awesome clothing for dedicated and committed athletes. I'm a huge supporter of what they're doing, and that's why I wear their clothing with pride. Make a statement and join the movement today at PotentialApparel.com. Be sure you use promo code Brian Kane with a space between Brian and Kane for 15% off on your first order. Dominate the day with potential apparel. Thanks for listening to the Brian Kane Peak Performance Podcast. Please make sure that you visit BrianKane.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-C-A-I-N.com and sign up for my Monday message where every Monday I deliver straight to your inbox videos, interviews, articles, tips, techniques, and strategies that you can use to master the mental game. You can also contact me through my website on our Contact Us page and see my calendar of where I'm going to be in the country and when I'm coming to your area so that we can get together and that we can continue to go out there and dominate the day. This is a production of Corn Belt Sports. The Brian Kane Peak Performance Podcast is part of the Top Coach Network.